Hello and welcome to this week's Law and Sport podcast with me, Sean Cottrell, the founder of Law and Sport. In this episode, I'll be speaking with Andy Gray, the Director of Regulatory and Legal Affairs at British Swimming ASA and the Head of Sports Law at the Montford Law School about the sports law education market in the UK and how students, trainees and newly qualified lawyers can secure their ideal job in sport. Sports law, as its own distinct area of law, has been growing in line with the commercialisation of the global sports market. At the same time, sports law education has been growing in popularity. Although still lagging behind the US, many academic institutions in the UK and Europe are now trying to meet the demand from undergraduate and postgraduate students wishing to study sports law. Therefore, I thought it would be a good idea to speak to someone who knows a little bit about this topic. So last week, I caught up with Andy Gray, Head of Sports Law at De Montford University, to talk about the courses they run with the British Association for Sport and Law, to find out how their sports or academic programmes have changed over the last 20 years. Here's what he had to say. Right, Sean. Well, I, I think it's probably fair to say that the, the, the initial drivers for uh, sports law as a credible academic discipline were the characters up at Manchester Metropolitan University, uh, Raymond Farrell uh, and the, the links that they had with the, with the practices uh, in Manchester, particularly Maurice Watkins, uh, James Chapman and Co., and more recently, um, Brabner's Chave Street. And then also the movement in uh, the Chelmsford area with uh, Simon Gardner and Anglia Polytechnic University. Um, so you had these two powerhouses of, of academic education during the, uh, the early part of the 1990s. Um, and then through um, a process of, of development and with more sports law practitioners coming on board, um, a, a big evolution took place when John Taylor, JT, of Bird and Bird, uh, formerly Hammonds and before that Townleys, when, when JT was very, very influential in setting up a sports law certificate course uh, with King's College, and that was the, the latter part of the 1990s and uh, early part of this um, century, and very much linked in with uh, the work JT and Adam Lewis did in producing their sports law and practice book. So I think that, that sort of sets the scene as to, uh, as to where we are uh, today. So what are the academic streams now and what is the profile of students studying on the courses? Now, since, so since the, the, the unfortunate demise of the, of the King's course, which was due to a change in, in uh, priorities within, within that institution, as I understand it, rather than any um, financial issues relating to the course, um, the British Association for Sport and Law, uh, Basel, together with its academic partner, De Montfort University, with, with, with whom I'm also involved, we uh, um, took the opportunity to uh, revisit the uh, uh, postgraduate certificate in sports law concept, working closely in particular with, with, with colleagues in Charles Russell's, who were most helpful in, in assisting in the development of the, of the syllabus and, and the course framework. And we wanted to present um, the, uh, a Kings-type course, um, recognising that, that it does have uh, very, very strong foundations in the needs of the sporting academic community, the sporting business community, uh, private practice, but also the governing bodies. And w the way in which this has developed uh, differently from the, from the original King's certificate model is that all of the sessions are delivered from the offices 
of the participating firms, all members of the, of, of the Basel um, group, uh, which gives an additional flavour and opportunity for the students on the course to get within the inner sanctum of, of, of these law firms and have the opportunity to meet colleagues from within the firms in a relatively informal setting. Usually uh, following a, a session, there will be the opportunity for, 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 for drinks and questions um, so that the students can, can start to understand not just the sports law, the substantive law, but also what it's like to be involved in sports law practice in London. What I should also add is that uh, by way of some quirky rock family trees type um, scenario, DeMontfort and Basil don't have the only claim to the King's College tra uh, tradition. Uh, not only was um, John Taylor involved, but also Mel Steen, uh, the distinguished lawyer, he was involved in the King's programme uh, and he now runs a postgraduate certificate course in conjunction with Coventry University, also hosted in London. Both of the courses have got a very high level of specialist practitioner um, input. So really there is rather an embarrassment of riches available for prospective students with an interest in this area. So who exactly are the speakers on the course and what organisations do they come from? The course uh, involves representatives from, from leading firms such as Charles Russell, from Farron Co., from Bird and Bird, from Oldswang, from Sheridan's, and also representing governing bodies. There's myself speaking with, a, with an ASA British Swimming perspective, and also representatives from the Football Association. So we are, we are endeavouring to cover all aspects of the regulatory and commercial side of sport w with people who are, are genuine experts in the field. So then there's the LLM that runs in parallel with the Sports Law Masters. Uh, that is a distance learning course. And is that different in what it offers students? Well, indeed it is. The, the sports law certificate course uh, carries 60 units in um, educational terms, whereas the De Montfort uh, Master's course, a Master's in Sports Law and Practice, carries 180 credits and bestows the, the award of, a, of an LLM to successful students. It is a distance law learning-based course with four optional but highly recommended teaching weekends each year. The course it differs from the, from the Basel certificate in that it is primarily intended for students who are based in the regions of the United Kingdom and an international audience. Um, and so due to the face-to-face the -face commitments involved in the Basel certificate course, that wouldn't quite be the course for them. But having said that, the, the distance learning course does give the opportunity for students to, to uh, uh, study to a greater depth and breadth aspects of sports law and practice over a two-year period. So what would you say is a typical driver for people who are enrolling on the course? Well, I think the, the overwhelming driver for, uh, for students to, to participate in either course is the opportunity to uh, uh, secure a credible certificate um, from, a, from a leading provider that, that forms um, the basis of a CV to move forward into a particular industry area. And I think that's important for any student choosing any course of any nature. They want to know that the piece of paper at the end of the day is a credible one that will hopefully help them to open some doors. Now, that being the driver, when they actually get on the course, what I very much hope is that they, they are able to develop relationships with, it, with their fellow students who become a natural alumni. 
Now, each of these courses has a slightly different alumni focus, but the one common theme is it's a, it's a group of lawyers with, with a hunger and an interest in a particular area who are able to develop relationships with each other and who form the basis of the practitioners in the area for years to come. And I know that this is one of the reasons why the, the London Basel firms are so supportive of the course is because they recognize that this alumni coming through the ranks are the leaders, the movers and shakers of 10 years time. So what advice would you give to students who are enrolling on your course or one of the other sports law courses? Um, how can they make the most of this opportunity? I think that uh, I would encourage every student uh, of sports law to uh, look beyond the confines of, of study of substantive law and in developing relationships, look for opportunities to get practical experience. Now, in, in my experience uh, working in-house within a governing body, one of the best ways to get practical hands-on experience is through volunteering. Now, most sports governing bodies have quite a sophisticated disciplinary process but they, they rely in the main upon the, the efforts, the unstinting efforts of volunteers, many of whom are not legally qualified, yet they're involved in sporting disciplinary panels, etc. If those governing bodies have the opportunity for, for, for uh, input from lawyers, maybe they're not fully trained sports lawyers, but they certainly have a legal qualification and a legal background. If those young lawyers are prepared to, to offer their time to assist the governing bodies, I'm sure that that, that would be most welcome and then gives an excellent opportunity for, 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 for the lawyer to get the hands-on experience that will hold them in good stead for the future. So once someone's finished the course, what are the sort of common mistakes that you find? Um, are there some simple steps that people can take to make sure that they maximise the value of the course? Often we see it in publishing where uh, people do not see some of the opportunities like either engaging in social media or other forms of marketing to make sure that they get the publicity that they, they, they should uh, rightly receive. In your experience, what are the sort of common mistakes that people make? Right. I mean, that's an excellent point, Sean. I think what I would certainly commend to, to any lawyer coming through the course would be to ensure that they remain a, a, an active member of the Basel family attending the Basel events, whether it's the main conference in uh, the October um, in London or the summer drinks um, in London again, or the, uh, the satellite uh, events, the mini conference held in November in Leicester every year, and also the new event that's held in, in Leeds in April of each year. Those are important opportunities for, for people to get together and to reacquaint themselves and refresh those working relationships and contacts. So keeping on the ground and keeping an active member of Basel, I think, is really, really important. And then, as you say, make, making sure they leverage the most of their skills and their uh, learning by using social media, whether it's LinkedIn or Facebook or Twitter, making sure that they don't lose the opportunity to make a very, very significant incremental benefit by pushing their name out there so they become recognized increasingly as being a person who's um, to be listened to in, in this area. And that could be extended out even further. Obviously, we're partners of the British Association for Sport and Law and having been a member for many years myself, as have many of my colleagues, we've found it extremely useful for networking and for building our knowledge base. However, there are a number of different um, organisations, including academic institutions, that run a number of networking events and seminars and conferences over the course of the year that are worth attending. 
Absolutely. I think there are a number of very, very active participants in, 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 the, in the sports law academic community. I've mentioned already De Montfort University, also Leeds Metropolitan University, Nottingham Law School and uh, Staffordshire have an international sports law centre. These are, are websites that, 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 that people should keep an eye on because very often there are, there are either face-to-face -face events or alternatively there's online opportunities for engaging in discussions, etc., which I'm sure participants would find incredibly beneficial and certainly would add, add value to the work being under, uh, undertaken by the academics at those institutions. Given that sports law is growing as a sector, and to use someone else's quote, that sports lawyers are often viewed as mavericks in the legal profession. How do you think the sports law education market and sports law provided as a legal service is going to develop in the coming years? That, that's, that's a really interesting question. That's, uh, it's almost a finger in the air time. Uh, I, I can see the, the, the prospect of a, a lot of convergence, uh, uh, the, the convergence of the various um, professions, be they accounting, business, legal, that that's certainly um, been uh, evident in other areas of activity in the corporate world. And I can see that in, in sport, a full force um, practice offering uh, a full range of business, legal and other allied services, intellectual property accounting. I think that that may well be something that might enter onto the landscape um, in, in, in a significant manner. As in so many areas, and Sean, I know you, that you know this better than I do, we could perhaps take some lessons from what happens in, over the pond. In the United States, I think sports law as a, as a business is perhaps 15, 20 years even ahead of ourselves. And so we only need to look at how, how things have developed in America to realize that things will not remain standing still. There's going to be some evolution, some developments. We won't be able to necessarily predict what they're going to be in advance. That's never the nature of things. But I think we have to be uh, aware that there's one thing that's absolutely certain, and that is there's going to be change. So sports law is, as we've established already, is a very popular area of the law, as there's many sports fans out there who are lawyers. It's an area where a lot of people want to move into. Um, it's hugely competitive. What are the... I'm a, if I'm a private practice lawyer, let's uh, just give you a hypothetical. I'm a private practice lawyer... I've maybe done a De Montford course, uh, I've maybe done the, the, the Basel, uh, Basel uh, LM or the postgraduate certificate. Um, I don't have that much relevant experience. I've maybe I've, I've, I'm, I'm going to start to do, take, I've taken on, I've listened to the podcast, I'm going to take on some of your advice, do some volunteering. What is the next step for me? How, what would you say is the sort of do's and don'ts about if you really want to become a sports lawyer, what are, what are employers looking for um, in a sports lawyer? Um, and how do I get that across as a, as, as, a, as a sports enthusiast, as a qualified lawyer who's passionate about the subject? Well, I think there's a number of things you could do. As a, as a qualified lawyer, let's imagine that you're perhaps two, three, four years qualified. You've not only amassed your, uh, your skills as a lawyer, but also you've, you've accumulated, no doubt, a good business acumen. 
Now, that business acumen could hold you in good stead in dealings with, with, with a governing body for sport, for instance, because you, you, you'd be a person who could put your name forward to be an independent director of one of these governing bodies. Um, at the moment, due to um, upskilling initiatives being um, promoted by UK Sport and Sport England, a number of governing bodies are looking to uh, engage uh, independent directors, not from within the sport, but from outside, often with business skills, and, and the lawyer's skills would feature very prominently uh, amongst the, the skill sets that would be very attractive. As governing bodies are, are seeking to demonstrate to the funding agencies that they have the highest standards of governance, what better than a lawyer to be able to be involved within a board and to, to, to bring those skills to bear to raise the standards for the sport? Now, as a consequence of that sort of engagement with the governing body, the individual is going to, be, going to get a reputation, going to be known within the sporting arena, and that hopefully would, would, would enable them to, make, to, to develop better relationships, which, which in turn may lead to, to fee income um, remuneration, not necessarily from the same governing body, but from others involved in sport with whom they've had dealings. And so, so you mentioned, and this is the interesting point, that, that you, you made, you said, okay, two to three years qualified. Why I say two to three years qualified, is there something that, and I've seen this a lot where people have gone through their training contract, they've started to realise maybe private practice is not the way for them, and they're desperate to get into an in-house role early on. Why was that two to three years significant? Well, I think it depends on which level you're pitching at. As I mentioned earlier, there are volunteering opportunities that are available at all levels. That's for people just with um, basic qualifications in law or the sports law certificate uh, or a legal practice course or, or the bar equivalent. Those people are, are going to be attractive to, to governing bodies and others for, for, for volunteering roles, but not necessarily at a board level because they, 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 they perhaps at this stage don't quite have the full range of business skills to, 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 to accompany their purest legal skills, which, which would make them add value at that level. But, but it's, a, it's a continuum. There are various entry and exit routes within sport where individuals who have the interest and the passion and the commitment can, can, can play a part. So what advice would you give to a young lawyer who's maybe got a training contract or they're applying for training contracts at the moment? What should they be doing? Should they be doing as much volunteering as possible? Well, what I would say is that certainly looking for volunteering opportunities, I would certainly commend. But also, I don't think people should necessarily feel they have to rush to finding a position in sports law. It, it is a journey. It's a, it's, a, it's a lifetime career, hopefully. And where a person starts um, may not be in sports law. For instance, I, I think there are traditionally two ways or possibly three ways in, into sports law through the criminal um, uh, route, where a person becomes a, a, an accomplished advocate and then moves into sport because the opportunities for advocacy and case management as part of a regulatory disciplinary process are clear. Alternatively, students or young lawyers may start um, in litigation, possibly doing personal injury work, and that could lead itself down the, the, a specialism within sporting injuries, whether it's skiing or whether it's in the team sports or golf, for instance. All of these areas have developed as niche areas of practice. And then there's the commercial sector. A person who's working in a commercial firm doing a broad range of company and commercial work, they are acquiring valuable skills 
that are capable of being applied in a sports industry context. Because at the end of the day, whatever a person's view about the debate, is there such a thing as sports law, what there most certainly is, is an area of legal practice that has a focus on the sports industry and relies heavily upon these commercial skills. That was Andy Gray, the Director of Regulatory and Legal Affairs from British Swimming ASA and the Head of Sports Law at the Monford Law School. Well, that's it for this show. If you want to listen to previous podcasts, they're available to download on iTunes or SoundCloud. And remember, for all your expert commentary and analysis on the latest issues and legal developments in the world of sport, go to lawinsport.com, follow us on Twitter, at lawinsport, or me personally, at Sport, or go to our YouTube channel, Lawinsport TV. Thank you for tuning in.